Welcome to Failed Utopia, the podcast about utopian ideas and paradise lost. We look at utopian concepts of the past, present, and future, as well as utopian communities and cults, which promise the world to eager followers, but inevitably fail when it all starts to unravel. Hey, Failed Utopians, I'm back with another episode on Thomas More's Utopia. This is part four. In the last episode, we finished up book one, which concluded when Thomas More and Peter Giles begged Raphael Hithliday to tell them absolutely everything about the wonderful land of Utopia. He's about to do just that in book two. But the friends have their priorities straight. They decide first to go and eat dinner and then return to the garden where Hithliday can answer all their burning questions about the ideal commonwealth. Book two has a short introduction about utopia generally and then several sections that each address a different facet of society. Today, I'll read you the introduction and the first four sections, which include of their towns, particularly of Amarat, of their magistrates, of their trades and manner of life, and of their traffic. Incidentally, Amarat is also the name of a location in Final Fantasy. (laughs) Connection or coincidence? I have no idea. The name is also remarkably similar to another word, amorosis, which is partial or complete loss of sight occurring without an externally perceptible change in the eye. That word came to us from New Latin, which borrowed it from the Greek amorosis, meaning dimming of sight or loss of sight without a visible cause. There's also another term, and little disclaimer, this is offensive, called amorotic idiocy, presumably also taken from that same Greek root, which used to be used to refer to a class of genetic conditions characterized by impaired vision or blindness and intellectual disability. So I don't know if Thomas More was using this Greek word as a root for the name of the city Amarat intentionally, but I bring it up because it is so similar and we know he came up with the name Utopia by making a pun on two similar sounding Greek words, which we talked about in episode one. I don't have any evidence to back this up. It's just an idea I had, but it seems like something he would do. Okay, etymology aside, let's hear what Raphael Hithliday has to say about Amarat and the rest of Utopia. Sir Thomas More's Utopia, Book 2 The island of Utopia is in the middle 200 miles broad and holds almost at the same breadth over a great part of it. But it grows narrower towards both ends. Its figure is not unlike a crescent. Between its horns, the sea comes in 11 miles broad and spreads itself into a great bay, which is environed with land to the compass of about 500 miles and is well secured from winds. In this bay, there is no great current. The whole coast is, as it were, one continued harbor, which gives all that live in the island great convenience for mutual commerce. 
But the entry into the bay, occasioned by rocks on the one hand and shallows on the other, is very dangerous. In the middle of it, there is one single rock which appears above water and may therefore be easily avoided. And on the top of it, there is a tower in which a garrison is kept. The other rocks lie underwater and are very dangerous. The channel is known only to the natives, so that if any stranger should enter into the bay without one of their pilots, he would run great danger of shipwreck, for even they themselves could not pass it safe if some marks that are on the coast did not direct their way. And if these should be but a little shifted, any fleet that might come against them, how great soever it were, would certainly be lost. On the other side of the island, there are likewise many harbors, and the coast is so fortified both by nature and art that a small number of men can hinder the descent of a great army. But they report, and there remains good marks of it to make it credible, that this was no island at first, but a part of the continent. Utopus that conquered it, whose name it still carries, for Abraxa was its first name, brought the rude and uncivilized inhabitants into such a good government and to that measure of politeness that they now far excel all the rest of mankind. Having soon subdued them, he designed to separate them from the continent and to bring the sea quite round them. To accomplish this, he ordered a deep channel to be dug 15 miles long. And that the natives might not think he treated them like slaves, he not only forced the inhabitants, but also his own soldiers, to labor in carrying it on. As he set a vast number of men to work, he, beyond all men's expectations, brought it to a speedy conclusion. And his neighbors, who at first laughed at the folly of the undertaking, no sooner saw it brought to perfection than they were struck with admiration and terror. There are 54 cities in the island, all large and well-built, the manners, customs, and laws of which are the same, and they are all contrived as near in the same manner as the ground on which they stand will allow. The nearest lie at least 24 miles distance from one another, and the most remote are not so far distant, but that a man can go on foot in one day from it, to that which lies next to it. Every city sends three of their wisest senators once a year to Amarat to consult about their common concerns, for that is chief town of the island, being situated near the center of it, so that it is the most convenient place for their assemblies. The jurisdiction of every city extends at least 20 miles, and where the towns lie wider, they have much more ground. No town desires to enlarge its bounds, for the people consider themselves rather as tenants than landlords. They have built all over the country farmhouses for husbandmen, which are well contrived and are furnished with all the things necessary for country labor. Inhabitants are sent by turns from the cities to dwell in them. No country family has fewer than 40 men and women in it besides two slaves. There is a master and a mistress set over every family, and over 30 families, there's a magistrate. Every year, 20 of this family come back to the town after they have stayed two years in the country, and in their room, there are other 20 sent from the town, that they may learn country work from those that have been already one year in the country, as they must teach those that come to them the next from the town. 
By this means, such as dwell in the country farms are never ignorant of agriculture and so commit no errors, which might otherwise be fatal and bring them under a scarcity of corn. But though there is every year such a shifting of the husbandmen to prevent any man being forced against his will to follow that hard course of life too long, yet many among them take such pleasure in it that they desire leave to continue in it many years. These husbandmen till the ground, breed cattle, hew wood, and convey it to the towns, either by land or water as is most convenient. They breed an infinite multitude of chickens in a very curious manner, for the hens do not sit and hatch them, but vast number of eggs are laid in a gentle and equal heat in order to be hatched, and they are no sooner out of the shell and able to stir about, but they seem to consider those that feed them as their mothers, and follow them as other chickens do the hen that hatched them. They breed very few horses, but those they have are full of metal and are kept only for exercising their youth in the art of sitting and riding them. For they do not put them to any work, either of plowing or carriage, in which they employ oxen. For though their horses are stronger, yet they find oxen can hold out longer, and as they are not subject to so many diseases, so they are kept upon a less charge and with less trouble. And even when they are so worn out that they are no more fit for labor, they are good meat at last. They sow no corn but that which is to be their bread, for they drink either wine, cider, or perry, and often water, sometimes boiled with honey or licorice, with which they abound. And though they know exactly how much corn will serve every town and all that tract of country which belongs to it, Yet they sow much more and breed more cattle than are necessary for their consumption, and they give that overplus of which they make no use to their neighbors. When they want anything in the country which it does not produce, they fetch that from the town without carrying anything in exchange for it, and the magistrates of the town take care to see it given them, for they meet generally in the town once a month upon a festival day. When the time of harvest comes, the magistrates in the country send to those in the towns and let them know how many hands they will need for reaping the harvest, and the number they call for being sent to them, they commonly dispatch it all in one day. Of their towns, particularly of Amorot. He that knows one of their towns knows them all. They are so like one another, except where the situation makes some difference. I shall therefore describe one of them, and none is so proper as Amorot, for as none is more eminent, all the rest yielding in precedence to this, because it is the seat of their supreme council. So there was none of them better known to me, I having lived five years altogether in it. It lies upon the side of a hill, or rather, a rising ground. Its figure is almost square, for from the one side of it, which shoots up almost to the top of the hill, it runs down in a descent for two miles to the river Anider. But it is a little broader the other way that runs along by the bank of that river. The Anider rises about 80 miles above Amorot, in a small spring at first, but other brooks falling into it, of which two are more considerable than the rest. As it runs by Amorot, it is grown half a mile broad, but it still grows larger and larger till after 60 miles course below it, it is lost in the ocean, between the town and the sea, and for some miles above the town, it ebbs and flows every six hours with a strong current. 
The tide comes up for about 30 miles so full that there is nothing but salt water in the river, the fresh water being driven back with its force, and above that for some miles the water is brackish. But a little higher, as it runs by the town, it is quite fresh, and when the tide ebbs, it continues fresh all along to the sea. There is a bridge cast over the river, not of timber, but of fair stone, consisting of many stately arches. It lies at that part of the town which is farthest from the sea, so that ships without any hindrance lie all along the side of the town. There is likewise another river that runs by it, which, though it is not great, yet it runs pleasantly, for it rises out of the same hill on which the town stands, and so runs down through it and falls into the Anniter. The inhabitants have fortified the fountainhead of this river, which springs a little without the towns, that so, if they should happen to be besieged, the enemy might not be able to stop or divert the course of the water nor poison it. From thence it is carried in earthen pipes to the lower streets, and for those places of the town to which the water of that small river cannot be conveyed, they have great cisterns for receiving the rainwater which supplies the want of the other. The town is compassed with a high and thick wall in which there are many towers and forts. There is also a broad and deep dry ditch, set thick with thorns, cast round three sides of the town, and the river is instead of a ditch on the fourth side. The streets are very convenient for all carriage and are well sheltered from the winds. Their buildings are good and are so uniform that a whole side of a street looks like one house. The streets are twenty feet broad. There lie gardens behind all their houses. These are large but enclosed with buildings that on all hands face the streets, so that every house has both a door to the street and a back door to the garden. Their doors have all two leaves, which, as they are easily opened, so they shut of their own accord, and there being no property among them, every man may freely enter into any house whatsoever. At every ten years' end, they shift their houses by lots. They cultivate their gardens with great care, so that they have both vines, fruits, herbs, and flowers in them, and all is so well-ordered and so finely kept that I never saw gardens anywhere that were both so fruitful and so beautiful as theirs. And this humor of ordering their gardens so well is not only kept up by the pleasure they find in it, but also by an emulation between the inhabitants of the several streets who vie with each other. And there is indeed nothing belonging to the whole town that is both more useful and more pleasant. So that he who founded the town seems to have taken care of nothing more than of their gardens, for they say the whole scheme of the town was designed at first by Utopus, but he left all that belonged to the ornament and improvement of it to be added by those that should come after him, that being too much for one man to bring to perfection. Their records that contain the history of their town and state are preserved with an exact care and run backwards 1,760 years. From these, it appears that their houses were at first low and mean like cottages made of any sort of timber and were built with mud walls and thatched with straw. But now their houses are three stories high. The fronts of them are faced either with stone, plastering, or brick, and between the facings of their walls, they throw in their rubbish. Their roofs are flat, and on them they lay a sort of plaster which costs very little, 
and yet is so tempered that it is not apt to take fire, and yet resists the weather more than lead. They have great quantities of glass among them with which they glaze their windows. They use also in their windows a thin linen cloth that is so oiled or gummed that it both keeps out the wind and gives free admission to the light. Of their magistrates. Thirty families choose every year a magistrate who was anciently called the Syphagrant, but is now called the Philarch. And over every ten Syphagrants, with the families subject to them, there is another magistrate who was anciently called the Tranibor, but of late the Arc Philarch. All the Syphagrants who are in number two hundred choose the prince out of a list of four who are named by the people of the four divisions of the city. But they take an oath before they proceed to an election that they will choose him whom they think most fit for the office. They give their voices secretly so that it is not known for whom everyone gives his suffrage. The prince is for life unless he is removed upon suspicion of some design to enslave the people. The Tranibors are new chosen every year, but yet they are for the most part continued. All their other magistrates are only annual. The Tranibors meet every third day and oftener if necessary and consult with the prince either concerning the affairs of the state in general or such private differences as may arise sometimes among the people, though that falls out but seldom. There are always two Syphagrants called into the council chamber and these are changed every day. It is a fundamental rule of their government that no conclusion can be made in anything that relates to the public till it has been first debated three several days in their council. It is death for any to meet and consult concerning the state unless it be either in their ordinary council or in the assembly of the whole body of the people. These things have been so provided among them that the prince and the Tranibors may not conspire together to change the government and enslave the people. And therefore, when anything of great importance is set on foot, it is sent to the Syphagrants, who, after they have communicated it to the families that belong to their divisions and have considered it among themselves, make report to the Senate. And upon great occasions, the matter is referred to the council of the whole island. One rule observed in their council is never to debate a thing on the same day in which it is first proposed, for that is always referred to in the next meeting, that so men may not rashly and in the heat of discourse engage themselves too soon, which might bias them so much that instead of consulting the good of the public, they might rather study to support their first opinions and by a perverse and preposterous sort of shame hazard their country rather than endanger their own reputation or venture the being suspected to have wanted foresight in the expedients that they at first proposed. And therefore, to prevent this, they take care that they may rather be deliberate than sudden in their motions. Of their trades and manner of life. Agriculture is that which is so universally understood among them that no person, either man or woman, is ignorant of it. They are instructed in it from their childhood, partly by what they learn at school and partly by practice, they being led out often into the fields about the town, 
where they not only see others at work, but are likewise exercised in it themselves. Besides agriculture, which is so common to them all, every man has some peculiar trade to which he applies himself, such as the manufacture of wool or flax, masonry, smith's work, or carpenter's work. For there is no sort of trade that is in great esteem among them. Throughout the island, they wear the same sort of clothes without any other distinction except what is necessary to distinguish the two sexes and the married and unmarried. The fashion never alters, and as it is neither disagreeable nor uneasy, so it is suited to the climate and calculated both for their summers and winters. Every family makes their own clothes, but all among them, women as well as men, learn one or other of the trades formerly mentioned. Women, for the most part, deal in wool and flax, which suit best with their weakness, leaving the ruder trades to the men. The same trade generally passes down from father to son, inclinations often following descent, but if any man's genius lies another way, he is by adoption translated into a family that deals in the trade to which he is inclined. And when that is to be done, care is taken not only by his father, but by the magistrate, that he may be put to a discreet and good man. And if after a person has learned one trade, he desires to acquire another, that is also allowed and is managed in the same manner as the former. When he has learned both, he follows that which he likes best, unless the public has more occasion for the other. The chief and almost the only business of the syphogrants is to take care that no man may live idle, but that everyone may follow his trade diligently. Yet they do not wear themselves out with perpetual toil from morning to night, as if they were beasts of burden, which as it is indeed a heavy slavery, so it is everywhere the common course of life amongst all mechanics except the utopians. But they, dividing the day and night into twenty-four hours, appoint six of these for work, three of which are before dinner and three after. Then they sup and at eight o'clock, counting from noon, go to bed and sleep eight hours. The rest of their time besides that taken up in work, eating, and sleeping is left to every man's discretion. Yet they are not to abuse that interval to luxury and idleness, but must employ it in some proper exercise according to their various inclinations, which is, for the most part, reading. It is ordinary to have public lectures every morning before daybreak, at which none are obliged to appear but those who are marked out for literature. Yet a great many, both men and women of all ranks, go to hear lectures of one sort or another, according to their inclinations. But if others that are not made for contemplation choose rather to employ themselves at that time in their trades, as many of them do, they are not hindered but are rather commended, as men that take care to serve their country. After supper, they spend an hour in some diversion, in summer in their gardens, and in winter in the halls where they eat, where they entertain each other, either with music or discourse. They do not so much as know dice or any such foolish and mischievous games. They have, however, two sorts of games not unlike our chess, the one is between several numbers, in which one number, as it were, consumes another. The other resembles a battle between the virtues and the vices, in which the enmity in the vices among themselves, and their agreement against virtue, is not unpleasantly represented. 
together with the special oppositions between the particular virtues and vices, as also the methods by which vice either openly assaults or secretly undermines virtue, and virtue, on the other hand, resists it. But the time appointed for labor is to be narrowly examined. Otherwise, you may imagine that since there are only six hours appointed for work, they may fall under a scarcity of necessary provisions. But it is so far from being true that this time is not sufficient for supplying them with plenty of all things, either necessary or convenient, that it is rather too much. And this you will easily apprehend if you consider how great a part of all other nations is quite idle. First, women generally do little, who are half of mankind. And if some few women are diligent, their husbands are idle. Then consider the great company of idle priests and of those that are called religious men. Add to these all rich men, chiefly those that have estates and land, who are called noblemen and gentlemen, together with their families, made up of idle persons that are kept more for show than use. Add to these all those strong and lusty beggars that go about pretending some disease in excuse for their begging, and upon the whole account you will find that the number of those by whose labors mankind is supplied is much less than you perhaps imagined. Then consider how few of those that work are employed in labors that are of real service, for we who measure all things by money give rise to many trades that are both vain and superfluous, and serve only to support riot and luxury. For if those who work were employed only in such things as the conveniences of life require, there would be such an abundance of them that the prices of them would so sink that tradesmen could not be maintained by their gains. If all those who labor about useless things were set to more profitable employments, and if all they that languish out their lives in sloth and idleness, every one of whom consumes as much as any two of the men that are at work, were forced to labor, you may easily imagine that a small proportion of time would serve for doing all that is either necessary, profitable, or pleasant to mankind, especially while pleasure is kept within its due bounds. This appears very plainly in Utopia, for there, in a great city and in all the territory that lies round it, you can scarce find five hundred either men or women by their age and strength are capable of labor that are not engaged in it. Even the syphogrants, though excused by the law, yet do not excuse themselves, but work, that by their examples they may excite the industry of the rest of the people. The like exemption is allowed to those who, being recommended to the people by the priests, are by the secret suffrages of the syphogrants privileged from labor that they may apply themselves wholly to study, and if any of these fall short of those hopes that they seemed at first to give, they are obliged to return to work. And sometimes a mechanic that so employs his leisure hours as to make a considerable advancement in learning is eased from being a tradesman and ranked among their learned men. Out of these they choose their ambassadors, their priests, their tranibors, and the prince himself, anciently called their barzines, but is called of late their Ademus. And thus from the great numbers among them that are neither suffered to be idle nor to be employed in any fruitless labor, you may easily make the estimate how much may be done in those few hours in which they are obliged to labor. But besides all that has been already said, it is to be considered that the needful arts among them are managed with less labor than anywhere else. 
The building or the repairing of houses among us employ many hands, because often a thriftless heir suffers a house that his father built to fall into decay, so that his successor must, at a great cost, repair that which he might have kept up with a small charge. It frequently happens that the same house which one person built at a vast expense is neglected by another who thinks he has a more delicate sense of the beauties of architecture, and he suffering it to fall to ruin builds another at no less charge. But among the utopians, all things are so regulated that men very seldom build upon a new piece of ground, and are not only very quick in repairing their houses, but show their foresight in preventing their decay, so that their buildings are preserved very long, with but little labor. And thus the builders to whom that care belongs are often without employment, except the hewing of timber and the squaring of stones, that the materials may be in readiness for raising a building very suddenly, when there is any occasion for it. As to their clothes, observe how little work is spent in them. While they are at labor, they are clothed with leather and skins cast carelessly about them, which will last seven years. And when they appear in public, they put on an upper garment, which hides the other. And these are all of one color, and that is the natural color of the wool. As they need less woolen cloth than is used anywhere else, so that which they make use of is much less costly. They use linen cloth more, but that is prepared with less labor, and they value cloth only by the whiteness of the linen or the cleanness of the wool, without much regard to the fineness of the thread, while in other places four or five upper garments of woolen cloth of different colors and as many vests of silk will scarce serve one man, and while those that are nicer think ten too few, every man there is content with one, which very often serves him two years. Nor is there anything that can tempt a man to desire more, for if he had them, he would neither be the warmer, nor would he make one jot the better appearance for it. And thus, since they are all employed in some useful labor, and since they content themselves with fewer things, it falls out that there is a great abundance of all things among them, so that it frequently happens that, for want of other work, vast numbers are sent out to mend the highways. But when no public undertaking is to be performed, the hours of working are lessened. The magistrates never engage the people in unnecessary labor, since the chief end of the Constitution is to regulate labor by the necessities of the public and to allow all the people as much time as is necessary for the improvement of their minds, in which they think the happiness of life consists. Of their traffic. But it is now time to explain to you the mutual intercourse of this people, their commerce, and the rules by which all things are distributed among them. As their cities are composed of families, so their families are made up of those that are nearly related to one another. Their women, when they grow up, are married out, but all the males, both children and grandchildren, live still in the same house, in great obedience to their common parent unless age has weakened his understanding, and in that case, he that is next to him in age comes in his room. But lest any city should become either too great or by any accident be dispeopled, provision is made that none of their cities may contain above 6,000 families, besides those of the country round it. No family may have less than 10 and more than 16 persons in it, 
and there can be no determined number for the children under age. This rule is easily observed by removing some of the children of a more fruitful couple to any other family that does not abound so much in them. By the same rule, they supply cities that do not increase so fast from others that breed faster. And if there is any increase over the whole island, then they draw out a number of their citizens out of the several towns and send them over to the neighboring continent, where if they find that the inhabitants have more soil than they can well cultivate, they fix a colony, taking the inhabitants into their society if they are willing to live with them. And where they do that of their own accord, they quickly enter into their method of life and conform to their rules. And this proves a happiness to both nations, for according to their constitution, such care is taken of the soil that it becomes fruitful enough for both, though it might be otherwise too narrow and barren for any one of them. But if the natives refuse to conform themselves to their laws, they drive them out of those bounds which they mark out for themselves and use force if they resist. For they account it a very just cause of war for a nation to hinder others from possessing a part of that soil of which they make no use, but which is suffered to lie idle and uncultivated, since every man has by the law of nature a right to such a waste portion of the earth as is necessary for his subsistence. If an accident has so lessened the number of the inhabitants of any of their towns that it cannot be made up from the other towns on the island without diminishing them too much, which is said to have fallen out but twice since they were first a people, when great numbers were carried off by the plague, the loss is then supplied by recalling as many as are wanted from their colonies, for they will abandon these rather than suffer the towns in the island to sink too low. But to return to their manner of living in society, the oldest man of every family, as has been already said, is its governor. Wives serve their husbands and children their parents, and always the younger serves the elder. Every city is divided into four equal parts, and in the middle of each there is a marketplace. What is brought thither and manufactured by the several families is carried from thence to houses appointed for that purpose, in which all things of a sort are laid by themselves, and thither every father goes and takes whatsoever he or his family stand in need of, without either paying for it or leaving anything in exchange. There is no reason for giving a denial to any person, since there is such plenty of everything among them, and there is no danger of a man's asking for more than he needs. They have no inducements to do this, since they are sure that they shall always be supplied. It is the fear of want that makes any of the whole race of animals either greedy or ravenous. But besides fear, there is in man a pride that makes him fancy at a particular glory to excel others in pomp and excess. But by the laws of the utopians, there is no room for this. Near these markets, there are others for all sorts of provisions, where there are not only herbs, fruits, and bread, but also fish, fowl, and cattle. There are also, without their towns, places appointed near some running water for killing their beasts and for washing away their filth, which is done by their slaves. For they suffer none of their citizens to kill their cattle, because they think that pity and good nature, which are among the best of those affections that are born with us, are much impaired by the butchering of animals. 
nor do they suffer anything that is foul or unclean to be brought within their towns, lest the air should be infected by ill smells which might prejudice their health. In every street there are great halls that lie at an equal distance from each other, distinguished by particular names. The Syphagrants dwell in those that are set over thirty families, fifteen lying on one side of it and as many on the other. In these halls they all meet and have their repasts. The stewards of every one of them come to the marketplace at an appointed hour, and according to the number of those that belong to the hall, they carry home provisions. But they take more care of their sick than of any others. These are lodged and provided for in public hospitals. They have belonging to every town four hospitals that are built without their walls, and are so large that they may pass for little towns. By this means, if they had ever such a number of sick persons, they could lodge them conveniently and at such a distance that such of them as are sick of infectious diseases may be kept so far from the rest that there can be no danger of contagion. The hospitals are furnished and stored with all things that are convenient for the ease and recovery of the sick, and those that are put in them are looked after with such tender and watchful care and are so constantly attended by their skillful physicians that as none is sent to them against their will, so there is scarce one in the whole town that, if he should fall ill, would not choose rather to go thither than lie sick at home. After the steward of the hospitals has taken for the sick whatsoever the physician prescribes, then the best things that are left in the market are distributed equally among the halls, in proportion to their numbers, only in the first place they serve the prince, the chief priest, the tranibors, the ambassadors, and strangers, if there are any, which indeed falls out but seldom, and for whom there are houses well furnished, particularly appointed for their reception when they come among them. At the hours of dinner and supper, the whole Syphagranti being called together by sound of trumpet, they meet and eat together, except only such as are in the hospitals or lie sick at home. Yet after the halls are served, no man is hindered to carry provisions home from the marketplace, for they know that none does that but for some good reason. For though any that will may eat at home, yet none does it willingly, since it is both ridiculous and foolish for any to give themselves the trouble to make ready an ill dinner at home, when there is a much more plentiful one made ready for him so near at hand. All the uneasy and sordid services about these halls are performed by their slaves, but the dressing and cooking their meat and the ordering their tables belong only to the women, all those of every family taking it by turns. They sit at three or more tables, according to their number, the men sit towards the wall and the women sit on the other side, that if any of them should be taken suddenly ill, which is no uncommon case amongst women with child, she may, without disturbing the rest, rise and go to the nurse's room, who are there with the sucking children, where there is always clean water at hand and cradles in which they may lay the young children, if there is occasion for it, and a fire that they may shift and dress them before it. Every child is nursed by its own mother if death or sickness does not intervene. And in that case, the Syphagrant's wives find out a nurse quickly, which is no hard matter. For anyone that can do it offers herself cheerfully, for as they are much inclined to that piece of mercy, so the child whom they nurse considers the nurse as its mother. 
All the children under five years old sit among the nurses. The rest of the younger sort of both sexes, till they are fit for marriage, either serve those that sit at table, or if they are not strong enough for that, stand by them in great silence and eat what is given them, nor have they any other formality of dining. In the middle of the first table, which stands across the upper end of the hall, sit the Syphagrant and his wife, for that is the chief and most conspicuous place. Next to him sit two of the most ancient, for there go always four to a mess. If there is a temple within that Syphagranti, the priest and his wife sit with the Syphagrant above all the rest. Next to them there is a mixture of old and young, who are so placed that as the young are set near others, so they are mixed with the more ancient, which they say was appointed on this account, that the gravity of the old people and the reverence that is due to them might restrain the younger from all indecent words and gestures. Dishes are not served up to the whole table at first, but the best are first set before the old, whose seats are distinguished from the young, and after them all the rest are served alike. The old men distribute to the younger any curious meats that happen to be set before them, if there is not such an abundance of them that the whole company may be served alike. Thus old men are honored with a particular respect, yet all the rest fare as well as they. Both dinner and supper are begun with some lecture of morality that is read to them, but it is so short that it is not tedious nor uneasy to them to hear it. From hence the old men take occasion to entertain those about them with some useful and pleasant enlargements, but they do not engross the whole discourse so to themselves during their meals that the younger may not put in for a share. On the contrary, they engage them to talk, so that they may, in that free way of conversation, find out the force of everyone's spirit and observe his temper. They dispatch their dinners quickly, but sit long at supper, because they go to work after the one and are to sleep after the other, during which they think the stomach carries on the concoction more vigorously. They never sup without music, and there is always fruit served up after meat. While they are at table, some burn perfumes and sprinkle about fragrant ointments and sweet waters. In short, they want nothing that may cheer up their spirits. They give themselves a large allowance that way and indulge themselves in all such pleasures as are attended with no inconvenience. Thus do those that are in the towns live together, but in the country where they live at great distance, everyone eats at home and no family wants any necessary sort of provision, for it is from them that provisions are sent unto those that live in the towns. Okay, so Thomas More had the chance here to create his utopia from scratch any way he wanted, and he opted to have it be a man-made island cut off from the mainland through an incredible feat of engineering. The native people of this newly created island are, of course, conquered by Utopus, the founder of the new country, Utopia. But according to Moore, they aren't mad about being used as slaves because Utopus makes his own soldiers work right alongside them. Uh, yeah. So apparently they don't feel mistreated at all. 
So I'm not really sure what to think about this. As with many parts of this book, it's actually kind of tough to tell what was written in seriousness and what was more sort of making a veiled criticism and what was satirical. Remember, back in book one, the character of Hithliday makes a point to complain a couple of times about how monarchs in Europe make a big mistake by going out and conquering new places to expand their territories when they already haven't done a good job of managing the territory they already have. So I guess it's possible that he's sort of poking fun at this expansionism, but I really can't tell. Irrespective of Moore's intentions, I think we can at least say that Utopia already pretty much sucks. So I'm just going to dispense with any suspense. Like I'm not going to wait until the very end and then be like, so was Utopia too good to be true? (laughs) No, uh, Utopia already sounds like shit. However, in the plus column, this island does seem to have it all in regards to its geography. It's pretty much set up perfectly for self-defense, agriculture, etc. They basically have everything they need. They produce plenty of meat and agricultural products. And he has this interesting scheme where people rotate between the cities and farms. So that's kind of interesting. I think the idea there is that in those days, agriculture was really, really hard work and just would break you down over time. And so people would just take it in turns, uh, work on a farm for a few years, then go back to the city and apply themselves to a trade. So that's kind of an interesting idea. Then in the section of their towns, particularly of Amarat, he does describe a pretty idyllic town. It has plenty of fresh water and some sort of aqueduct system, which maybe he finds inspiration in the Roman system. A lot of it doesn't sound too great now, but I think the idea was that he was trying to create a picture based on the technology he knew about back then, where the city would have plenty of clean water and sanitation, which was such a big problem for humankind. Um, People would get sick all the time because they didn't know what to do with their garbage and their sewage and their water was infected with pathogens. So I think the idea, um, even though the the particulars sound a little bit strange, is just that um, they have things all set up to be healthy. Um, Apparently in this society, everyone just absolutely loves gardening. (laughs) Not sure how realistic that is, but uh, yeah, I guess that's just them. They love gardening. Another thing that struck me is that the cities are just very uniform. I mean, the houses are all exactly the same, um, but somehow, you know, magically everyone is happy with it and no one wants it to be different or to have their own unique looking house. That doesn't seem realistic, but that's how it is in Utopia. In the next section of their magistrates, he sort of just talks about the general system of government, which sounds like basically a monarchy, but with more accountability to the people. In Of Their Trades and Manner of Life, I think one of the most interesting things is that he describes a short workday of only six hours. Everyone takes part in a trade. And so his explanation basically of how they only need to work six hours a day is that everyone works. 
And in his telling, out in the non-utopia world, women are idle and useless and just do nothing. (laughs) So do priests and other religious men. And so do rich people who are basically the idle class, which was kind of true in England back then, I guess. And then he also thinks that there are a lot of people who work in jobs that are just useless and superfluous and unnecessary, and that they should be put to work doing something actually useful. And so if you get everybody working and everybody is doing something that actually contributes, you only need people working a few hours a day. One thing that struck me as really weird in here is that people can choose a trade, or men can anyway, and they usually do whatever their father did, but they don't have to. If they want to do something else or they're very good at something else, that's fine. But instead of just having that son, you know, do whatever trade that suits him, they adopt him out into a different family. <laughs> I, I don't really get that. But apparently, if you don't have the same job as your dad, you have to get a new dad. In Of Their Traffic, it gets even worse. He proposes that family sizes should be kept within a certain range by just taking kids from bigger families and giving them to smaller families. Uh, Okay, that doesn't sound ideal, but I guess it does to Thomas More. And if the entire island is becoming too populous, they just take a bunch of people and send them off to the mainland from which they separated themselves and they can start up a colony. And if the natives don't want them to start a colony on their land, they can just take it by force. And the rationale for this is that if the natives aren't using their land for farming, then it's a law of nature that a man should be able to take that land and use it himself. So I guess that's just the mindset of imperialism. It's also a patriarchal society in the extreme, and I'm not sure if this stems from the context of the time or more particularly the specifics of Thomas More's religious beliefs. Anyway, I'm trying to keep an open mind, but so far, utopia sounds creepy, boring, and shitty. If I had to say one good thing about utopia, it's that they always listen to music with dinner and they eat fruit after their meat. I love fruit. On the next episode, let's see if things get any more appealing in the chapter called Of the Traveling of the Utopians. If you enjoyed this episode, please follow and leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to help other people find it. Tell your friends about it. And if you want to support the pod directly and help keep new episodes coming, you can donate to the show through the link at the bottom of the show notes. Connect and stay in the loop on the website failedutopia.com or the Facebook page at failedutopiapod. Failed Utopia episodes are written and produced by me, Anna Roberts. The burning palm tree painting featured on the cover is by artist Perry Vasquez. My intro music is by Elliot Middleton. See you next time.